Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. Before we moved into the warehouse and expanded to multiple campus locations, Rolling Hills met in a movie theater. And now we're visiting the movies once again in our series, At The Movies. Whether it be a hero's journey, a villain's downfall, or a fairy tale ending, everyone loves a movie with a good story. But every good story borrows from God's story. In this series, we're looking at five different movies to see how we can find faith stories in film. Now let's tune in. Good morning. (laughs) Subliminally, there was a message in that bumper telling you to go to the concession stand and buy an overpriced Coca-Cola, but we don't have a concession stand, so you're going to be okay. I'm glad that you're here today, and I just want to go ahead and acknowledge it in the room because I know that many of you know it, and I know it. We don't get our faith from film, and if we do, we're going to be left really, really empty and super disappointed, wondering why in the world things are not working for us. So why would we be leaning in to a series that bounces off of the idea of popular movies in culture in our lifetimes? One word, story. Now, somehow or another, over the next five weeks, what we have to engage is the idea that you and I all have a story, and what matters more than anything else in life is how this story that we've been given intersects with the greatest story that's ever been told, that which comes from Scripture and involves faith in Jesus. What we do to attach ourselves to that story matters more than anything else. We acknowledge that, but I want to go ahead and acknowledge one more thing so that you know it and so that you know that I know it. The hero, in spite of what we see, doesn't always win. And the villain doesn't lose every single time. And movies, just so that you're aware, and real life too, neither one are always fairy tales. But yet we're going to lean into this whole idea. Why? Part of it is it's our 20th birthday. It's the anniversary of the fact that God allowed us to be a part of this movement and this church and that we have a foundational part of our DNA that still lives inside of us that started at a movie theater in Cool Springs. I had a lot of jobs back then in those movie theater days, and some of you were there and you remember it. I came in in 2007 to serve at a movie theater church plant as the youth pastor with middle school and high school kids, and every Sunday morning during the first hour, we would gather in what's called the Derby. It was a cafe in the Cool Springs movie theater to do our morning Bible study, and then we would go to Theater 15 to worship with all the grown-ups. I called it Big Church. It was definitely Big Church in a movie theater. And one of my jobs on Sunday mornings as we were there setting up every single week was to go buy all of the posters and cover them up with tablecloths if they included cardboard cutouts that we didn't want in people's minds as they were walking in and out of church on a Sunday. You know what I'm talking about. 
we had a lot of moments to think through what this series would look like. You and I don't grab our faith from what's popular and what's cultural, and that is problematic. Well, so is doing church in a movie theater in general. There were many weeks on Sunday morning when there's Jeff at the bottom of the area in front of the giant screen giving a prayer or setting up the offering and the movie would go ahead and start that was going to be playing later that day and we had no idea what was going to happen. There's a lot of challenges but there were also a lot of blessings and just like we didn't know what we were going to see then, you kind of don't know what you're going to see now. So take just a minute to turn your attention to the screens and watch this. There are people who always read the book before they go to see the movie. Some of you are like that. And some of you are fine having seen the movie without ever having read the book. There are people who have read all of those old school comic books and they watch these kinds of movies with a little bit of side eye, knowing that somehow or another the directors and the producers have changed the things that they're the most committed to or glossed over. And some of you haven't seen any of these movies and I want to relieve any sort of pressure that you feel this week. You don't have to have seen any of these for the stuff that we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks to make sense. At the core of this movie or any of the superhero Avengers movies, and there's a whole lot of them, you'd have to call in sick every day this week at work to be able to digest all of them. That's okay. There's a bunch of them at the core. They're all about this big battle between good and between evil and flawed people listening to some of the things that we just heard, recognizing that their best may not be good enough, knowing that you can't go back, understanding that somehow we all need a do-over, and that no matter what else, whatever it takes is the call that we've been given. We can identify with some of that because at the end of it all, this is really just about a story. And who we talk about today is somebody who specialized in stories, and that's Jesus. He took really relevant, really recognizable items in his modern-day culture thousands of years ago and explained them in such a way that allowed people to get a glimpse of what his heavenly reality was. If you have your Bibles with you this morning or a mobile device or whatever way you like to tune in, even if it's just checking out the screens and the verses as they come, then I want you to look at Luke chapter 14. It's in the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, to dive in into some circumstances that Jesus was in and some stories that Jesus told. We begin with verse 1. It says, one Sabbath. Now, this is the day that's set apart since Old Testament times and the law was given. This is a day that's set apart and it's made holy. And for over a thousand years, they had been trying to figure out how can we make the Sabbath holy and how can we prevent ourselves from doing anything wrong that would be considered unholy on a Sabbath day. But this particular Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And some of your Bible translations are going to say when he went to eat bread, because that's literally the translation of what happens in those words when he sat down for a meal. And the reason it was bread and not some other dish is because this was the Sabbath. You weren't permitted to do any work. The host would not have been allowed to be cooking all morning. It had to be the dish that you would have prepared the day before. Y'all do a crock pot meal where you make it a night ahead. Those are super easy. But this time they just made bread because you could eat it the next day. So here's Jesus dining at the home of a prominent Pharisee, somebody who specialized in all of the rules that they would have had to observe on the Sabbath, and they're eating bread, and he's being watched. If that makes you nervous, it does me too, because I don't like to be watched, especially when I eat. But they're suspicious of Jesus. 
And they're actually, if you read these details, setting a trap for him. It says there in front of him, like right across from him at the table, was a man suffering from abnormal, not normal, but abnormal swelling of his body. Some of your Bible translations say dropsy, which I think is a funny word. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, knowing that they had set him up, knowing that the seating arrangement at the table that day and the fact that they put this particular guy with that particular infirmity right in front of him on the particular day of the week that it was, he knew that this was a trap. And so he asked the people, is it lawful, is it allowed to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. They didn't want to answer Jesus, engage in a dialogue with Jesus. They wanted to set a trap for Jesus. So taking hold of the man, he did exactly what they knew he would do. He healed him and sent him on his way. No more abnormal swelling of the body. No more dropsy. No more retaining fluid. This guy is well. And so then Jesus asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Apparently, the people in that culture considered ox and children on the same playing field. And they, I don't know, like, I feel like I would have been a little bit more worried about my child who fell in a hole than my ox who fell in a hole. If an ox is going to fall into a hole, it has to be real big. But here we are saying, if you have either an ox or a kid, one or the other, same plane, if either one of them falls into a hole, aren't you going to go get it even if it's the Sabbath day? And still, they had nothing to say. I don't think they had anything to say because they understood what he meant and they didn't want to publicly agree or publicly admit to the fact that yes, they would go get their kid. Yes, they would work on getting their ox. And so Jesus began to tell them a series of truths and a series of stories. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. We all know where the mother of the bride is supposed to sit at a wedding. Don't take her spot because how awkward would it be if somebody had to come to you before the wedding starts and says, hey, this is actually the road that we're going to seat the mother of the bride and she's clearly the most important person in the room except for the bride, sorry, groom. So we want to make sure she has a spot. How awkward that would be. The host is going to have to come to you, verse 9, and say, give this person your seat, then humiliate walk of shame, you will have to take a least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, hey friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is given a picture of a heavenly reality in their present normal day circumstances. Yes, he's teaching them how to be gracious guests and he's about to teach them how to be a gracious, good host. But ultimately he's painting a picture of his kingdom. He's using their reality to unveil his. Okay, I can see a movie coming out of this. It says, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your sister, or your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of his righteousness. If you were to go back to Luke chapter 13, you'll encounter a couple of current events in their lives. We all have current events in our lives, those that are at a, that a personal level or a local level or a national level or an international level, things that we are concerned about and things that we lose sleep over. There are current, they were losing sleep over some current events in their days. The fact that Pilate had taken, you know him, because we talk about him as e, at Easter, 
as the governor who was responsible for ultimately sentencing Jesus to death. Well, in this moment, some Judean rabble-rousers had upset him so much, he actually had them executed and, 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 and mixed their blood with some sort of sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. And this would have been a terrible circumstance. And so Jesus looks at his disciples, and he looks at the crowds that had gathered around him, and he's like, hey, do you think all those people were more sinful than you? Because there would have been an expectation. If something really bad happened to them, it's because they were more sinful than we are. And because we were spared and nothing bad happened to us, we must be less sinful than them. Another just kind of like, like tragic instance occurred where one of the towers fell on a group of people and they all died. Just a natural disaster, just a tragic event. We, we read about global tragedies and we understand local tragedies all the time. And sometimes we're tempted to think in those moments, well, if something really bad happens to you, it's probably because you deserved it. And if something really bad didn't happen to me, it's probably because I didn't deserve it. Somehow or another, Jesus is framing for them the idea that none of this work stuff matters the way that they somehow think that it does. There's an economy of God's people And people may not be exactly where they think they are. So then in verse 15, somebody clues in and starts to get it. When one of those at the table heard him, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus is communicating to them who has value in the kingdom. Here's somebody who gets it. And in that moment, Jesus seizes the opportunity to tell them even another story about a great banquet. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and he invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for now everything is ready. But they all began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Well, I'm sorry, who buys a field without seeing it first? That's a pretty flimsy excuse. And another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Who buys a car without test driving it? I thought about that, but then I realized there's this thing where you can have a car ordered and shipped it to you and all this kind of deal that happens in the modern day world. And so this may not have as much of an illustrative point as I'm trying to make. But back then, who would have bought five oxen without seeing that they were quality oxen first? He says, please excuse me. What a flimsy excuse. And still another said, hey, I just got married, so I can't come. Nobody said that you couldn't bring a plus one. None of these held water. And you and I ought to recognize flimsy excuses when we see them because you've been given flimsy excuses before and you might have even given a flimsy excuse of your own a time or two. Oh, I don't need church. I can just worship God on my own. I can just kind of, I'm grow. What does that really mean in your life? Oh, well, the serving, I don't know if I can really dive into this or I don't know if I can reach out to that person. Oh, I can, there's a whole lot going on in my life. These things take, oh, We walk and live and breathe in some pretty flimsy. I can't forgive my mom because what she did was just too wrong. And people don't realize how mm, we walk on some pretty flimsy excuses. So scripture says that the servant came back and reported to the master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered that his servant go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, we've, what you've ordered has been done but there is still room. So then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes 
and compel them to come in. If you're a person that likes to underline things in your Bible or take a picture of things with your phone and keep it in a prominent place where you can see it on a regular basis, it's this phrase, so that my house will be full. We need to add a couple more rows in this room, and I'm so excited. I long for the moment when every chair is filled, and we have to, I long for the more when we have to get up even earlier and do additional services. I long for the moment when, when we require a, a larger space to gather together. I, I long for that moment because we want, just like this wants, the, the table to be full. This gospel that we believe in and this truth that we communicate and this story that we ascribe to, this gospel goodness includes, according to what we just read, healing and hosting. It's this idea, man with dropsy, abnormal swelling, that we would be healed, but also really large table with a seat that's been prepared just for you, that we will be hosted. We are literally, because of the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ, we're invited to be made whole, and we're invited to take part. We're invited to be healed, and we're invited to be a part of the gathering, a part of the banquet, a part of the story. And it's, it's not just us. This is for people who don't deserve it and never thought that they would ever experience it. And story after story after story and conversation after conversation after conversation, Jesus goes out of his way to ascribe value and worth to even the least and the last in this community, making it known that lonely people, sick people, anxious people, sad people, depressed people, ashamed people, guilty people are invited to take a seat. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works. It's not the things that you do that earned your seat at the table. It's what has been done for you and what has been prepared for you so that none of us can brag about it. This whole picture of our hearts and our holes, physically and spiritually, we get to be healed and we're hosted. We're invited to come and to commune and to dine with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because a table has been set and a place has been saved just for you. In this Avengers movie, we have an awful villain. You don't need to know his name. I'll just tell you it's Thanos. And there's this line that he says, I am inevitable. Some of you woke up this morning and thinking to yourself, okay, the bad guy is inevitable. Pain is inevitable. Problems are inevitable. If the house can fall, it will fall. Kind of inevitability in life. You are looking over your shoulder and around every corner knowing that the bad is always out to get you. And that tiny bit of really expensive fiction is just a picture of our actual reality because we do have an enemy, we do have a villain, and his whole desire is that we would be stolen from, killed, and ultimately destroyed in the movie. He wanted to end half of all life, and when he found out that that didn't work. He wanted to wipe out everything and every single one. That's not just a movie that you can pay $100 to go see because, whoo, have you looked at ticket prices? That's the reality that you and I walk in, that there's an enemy that wants to end it for y'all. And the truth is, what we have to glean from this reality and even notice in that fiction is that there will be an end 
There will be an end. It is inevitable and it is a guarantee. There will be an end to you and to me and to everybody else. A person's days, Job 14, verse 5, a person's days are numbered. That's right. A person's days are determined and that God himself on high has decreed the number of months and set limits that none of us can extend. Every single one of us has an expiration date. and We don't know if it's going to be that we live to be 100 and got our name in the paper or if we, like I am, 45, about to kick the bucket right now. We don't know when the end is, but we can be sure that there is an end to you and to everything. To everything, there will be an absolute end. Everything around us will fade. And there's this incredible promise, and it comes from Scripture. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus says it. He promises us that this gospel, this good news, this part that's about healing and hosting, this part that's about us being forgiven, the lame, the crippled, the lost, the weak, the sinful, being invited to come to the table, that the gospel of that good news where weak, wretched, non-deserving people like us get to be included, that gospel, that goodness, that truth is going to be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, not just the Jewish nation. That was mind-boggling to Jesus's audience of the day, to understand that other people could be included, to understand that other people could be invited, that the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There will be an end, but it's also not a game. It's not a game. Over Christmas, we were gifted by some really good friends of ours a game called Anomia. I don't know if you've ever played it. There's a ton of versions of it. The word Anomia is that phrase that we use for, oh, 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 it's on the tip of my tongue, but I just can't get the word out. And the whole game is played by the fastest person to get the word out is the one who gets to keep the card, and it's so fun. And there's a winner at the end. It's usually me. I celebrate those moments. Like, we're playing fun with this Anomia. Ah, I know the word, but I just can't get it out. I just can't say it fast enough. Yes, that's a game, but Anomia isn't just, oh, 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 it's on the tip of my tongue, and I can't say it. It's also a picture of brain damage. It's a picture of an actual aphasia where a person can't recall the words that they want to say. What we're talking about with this whole series is not the fun game that you play when you collect cards. It's literally the damage that is done to every single one of us because of the sins in our life where we can't attach ourselves to the word on our own. We need somebody to do that for us. The reason it's not a game is because the stakes are really, really high. Jesus told that crowd in Luke chapter 13, the ones who were trying to figure out, oh, the people that got killed by Pilate, they must have been worse than us. Or, oh, the people that were underneath the tower, they were somehow more sinful than we are. We're probably on the okay side of the spectrum. Jesus looked at that crowd and said, I tell you, unless you repent, you too, you just like those guys, are all going to perish. The stakes are incredibly high. And the deadline? It's unknown. We don't know when the expiration date is going to come, and we don't know how long it will last. Jesus follows up that story about the tower and about the blood of the martyrs in the pilot instance in Luke chapter 13 with a parable about a fig tree that bore no fruit. And the guy in that parable asked the master, hey, do you want me to go ahead and cut down that tree since it's not bearing fruit? And the master says, no, leave it alone for another year. 
and then I'll come and dig around it and fertilize it. And some of us are living our lives that way, thinking, oh, it's okay. I don't have to really dive into scripture today. I don't really have to commit myself to a local church today. I don't really have to be faithful today because tomorrow will come and there's always another opportunity. There's literally a point in scripture where that says, hey, this tree that's not bearing fruit today, that's okay. God will come and fertilize it another day. But in Luke chapter 14, he looks at those people and says, I tell you, not even one of those people that I invited, the ones who gave the flimsy excuses, is going to get to come and taste the food at my banquet. And don't you imagine that it's probably a really good menu? Like if God prepared it, making you hungry a little bit. Like you, you eat with your eyes first, and then you eat with your stomach. It feels real good. So wait a minute. This, this, this leads me to believe that like, oh, there's always another day. Tomorrow's going to come, and I'll have another chance. We're going to leave the tree alone, and one day it'll bear fruit. And this one says that, hey, there's a deadline due to... The deal is that we don't know. The stakes are high. An end will come. It's not a game. And the deadline is unknown. Jesus told his disciples that not even he or the angels know the hour or the day. We know that the end is going to come, but we don't get to know when it is. So what do we do? We know and recognize Every single one of us has a role that counts. Segway into the movie. This whole picture of Avengers is a whole bunch of other superheroes and a whole bunch of other superhero histories and movies and stories coming together where they fight with one another. And every single one has a special gift. Every single one has a special skill. Every single one has a special whatever that makes them just the right person for just a specific moment. And the same is absolutely true of each and every one of us. Paul wrote it, and it's written down for us in Ephesians chapter 4. This is a foundational verse for us as a church. It says, Christ gave himself to the, the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers to equip his people, all the people, for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. But I got to go check out my new oxen first. Is that okay? Or I got to go take a look at a field first. Is that okay? Well, I just got married and she's real. Does she need to come to? Like we offer up whatever flimsy excuses that we have and fail to realize that we have a part to play in this story. We have a part to play in someone else's story that points them to this bigger story. The whole goal is that you and I would live this whatever-it-takes kind of life so that people can see the only thing that matters in life. We're supposed to live every day, pray every day, plan every day, make decisions every day, as if nothing else but this matters. There's this part of the gospel story that's written down for us in Romans chapter 10. Apostle Paul writes that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the one and only decision, one and only phrase, one and only moment in our life that matters, that we choose to understand that Christ died in our place so that we might live according to his purpose, that we might be saved. And then he says, for it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess and your faith and are saved. Nowhere does it say that you have to work for this. No way does it say that you have to obtain this. It literally says that it's given to you. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him, that's Jesus, will never be put to shame. And then he says there's no difference 
There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Imagine the audience that was hearing these words, understanding that more people other than us are going to be included. Somehow they had missed it all the way back in the Hosea when the prophet wrote, I will call those people who are not my people, my people. And they will say, okay, yeah, you are my God. There was always a plan from the very beginning that God would extend the table to people that his people did not think belonged at it. And here Jesus is sitting across from a sick guy at the home of a Pharisee, telling them who gets to come. It's anybody who believes. It's anybody who trusts. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. And then he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then a series of questions, how then can they call on the name of the Lord if they have not but they haven't heard of him. And how can they hear without somebody preaching it to him? And how can anybody preach unless they are sent? I want to read between the lines here and say, you're the one who's sent. You're the one who's called. You have a role to play to help somebody else believe, to help somebody else hear, to help somebody else know that there's a seat for them at this table. It says, but not all the Israelites in verse 16 accepted the good news. They had really flimsy excuses. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Then Paul writes, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And the word's this. You get to be healed. You get to be forgiven. You get to be chosen. You get to be loved. You get to sit at the table and enjoy the banquet, whatever it takes. There's a reason why this movie is called Endgame, and it's not because it was the last movie. They keep making these things, and you want to know why? Because it makes them a whole lot of money. They're probably going to keep making these things as long as you and I, people like us, keep paying for these things. Like, this was not the last one, even though it's called Endgame. The idea of Endgame is a chess move. In a game of chess, not checkers, in a game of chess, king, queen, pawn, bishop, rook, the whole nine yards... In a game of chess, there's the early game, the middle game, and the end game. But the end game doesn't necessarily mean the end game because that really only comes when somebody says checkmate. But there's this whole section of the game that's called end game, and there's very few very few parts on the table. And oftentimes, in order to switch the thing that's going to happen in the end game, if you're about to lose, it requires a sacrifice. You'll have to sacrifice one of your pieces that's kind of good in order to protect your piece that's even better. This picture of sacrifice is a whatever-it-takes kind of moment. And so we ask ourselves today, what if evangelistically and sacrificially you and I were people who were willing to do absolutely whatever it takes to host and to heal, to be a part of this good story, to lean into this narrative and live our life, no excuses, as if nothing else matters. We have an enemy that wants to end all life, so what if we existed to end all loneliness? Like we have an enemy that wants to pile on pain. So so what if we existed to end all lostness? What if it was in our day, in our generation, with all of the tools and the resources that are at our fingertips, we were part of the day when we got to see this gospel of good news, healing and hope and future preached in all the nations so that the end can come. And we don't do it because we want the end to come because this whole world's a dumpster fire and we're ready for it to be over anyway. We come because we want everybody to know that the table is big enough to include them. What if 
we lived like we existed to end all hate and all hostility. Instead of being part of the problem, we recognized our role as part of the solution. What if we lived like we existed in our day and in our generation and for our purpose in Jesus Christ to end all racism because the world and the systems that are in it yearn for people who will do that because we've been healed. Because we know there's a seat at the table for anybody and everybody. What if we lived like we existed to end poverty? What if our end game was doubt? And we wanted to make sure that no one ever had a reason to doubt that there was a God in heaven who loved them and did whatever it took on his part to save them. There's a character in the movie. His name is Dr. Strange. And y'all, he's a weirdo. Like, it's so bizarre. You don't even have to watch the movies to know. Like, so strange. That's kind of supposed to describe us. Like the world's supposed to find us hard to recognize. They're supposed to think that we're different. They're supposed to think that we're out there. They're supposed to, by the way that we live out the love and live out the hope and live out the peace and all those good fruits of the Spirit that we hung on banners last semester, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that is weird to the world, and we're supposed to be strange to them. Well, in this one key moment, he goes into the future, and he sees that there are 14,605,000 possible outcomes for what's going to happen at the end of that movie and this story and all life. And so Iron Man asks him, out of the 14,605,000 possible futures that you just saw, how many did we win? And Dr. Shane says one. And he knows then and there that the one involved the absolute ultimate sacrifice. There are 14,605,000 possible ways that you could live your life, decisions that you could make, paths that you could take. In a game of chess, just with the legal moves, there are 10 to the 40th power possible solutions for that silly game. I can't even tell you what 10 to the 40th power is because you would question my intelligence because I can't say that big of a number, but it's big. There's all these possible solutions, but there's only one way to win. Sacrifice. There's all these possible paths, all these crazy world religions, all these stories and opportunities, but only one that really matters. It's Jesus Christ crucified. Only one leads to victory. There's 14,605,000 things that you can do with your life, but only one will lead to peace, and that's living out your part of the story, inviting other people to come and to sit at the table. Who have you saved a seat for, and who's here because you invited them? 14,605,000 choices of You living out your dreams and you living out your story and you picking your own path. But only one is kingdom. It's you going second. You taking the least seat. You making a sacrifice. Us giving our all whatever it takes to see somebody else understand that God is good, that he loves them, There will be an end. It is not a game. The stakes are incredibly high, but the gift is really, really good. And the table is really, really grand. And we're invited to be a part of it, and we're invited to bring others too. 
That's the only thing that matters. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day, for the chance to be in this place, for the opportunity to celebrate just how good you are. And Father, my prayer today for friends of mine in this room is that more than anything else, that we would all sit back and recognize that you have a plan, that you have a purpose, and that we're invited, regardless of who we are, regardless of what we've done, regardless of the pain we've caused, we're invited to come to the table and be a part of it through the gift of your Son, that of all the 14,605,000 or 10 to the 40th power options that there are in life, only one leads to victory. Only one leads to joy. It was the sacrifice of your son and the sacrifice of all of us, the sacrifices we make to point other people to him. That's all that matters. And it's in his holy and precious name that we pray on this day. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with movie lovers, friends, and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.